Take your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49, we're not going to get into 50 today. And I would remind you, this is the, the beauty of how the Scriptures are written. The primary author of the Bible is God Himself. And God Himself is outside of time. So when he wrote his scriptures, he saw all of time laid out in front of him like a scroll. He's able to see all of it simultaneously, which means that when he wrote his scriptures, he wrote this in the time of Isaiah, specifically for an original uh, listening audience there in Jerusalem. And the people that came after, all the way to us today, and in fact, actually for all the people that will then come after us. We still might be in the early church. We don't know. It could be 100,000 years after us until Jesus comes back. But We are able to say with confidence that this was written for us today because our God is wise and outside of time and space and energy and matter. So hear what the Lord has to say to you in Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make 
All my mountains erode and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around you and see, they all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallow you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement yet will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me to make room for me to dwell in. And then you will say in your heart, who's born these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations, raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Will the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Father, we thank you for easy passages in the Bible that comfort us quickly. We thank you for passages like this that are not in that list, that stretch our minds and our hearts, and we pray, O Lord, even now, that you will give us faith, not in ourselves, but in Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. How do we choose which songs we sing here? It's a question, actually, I get periodically. 
Usually it's asked with the implication that uh, it's not been done very well. That's usually the, the context of that. <clears throat> and some Sundays I would agree with that, actually, where I'm like, what did I do? How did we get to this place? How have I decided on this? Well, there's a number of things as to the songs that we choose. One, and many of you probably figure this out, we sing at least one psalm every service that we have. Um, the Scriptures think highly of singing the psalms. It's not all that we sing. Scriptures leave category for a new song, and we do that. Uh, but we sing lots of hymns. But uh, why do we sing the ones that we sing? Well, uh, a number of years ago, I remember reading a book, and uh, a gentleman was kind of thinking kind of out loud at part of the book of uh, why we sing hymns the way that we do. And I, I remember as one of those kind of lines that sticks with you when you go. He said, hymns, good hymns, are the only things that sing well in hospice houses. I was like, whew. Now, the the backdrop to that was a story of him carrying his child down the hallways of the hospice as she was preparing to go to glory and singing the songs of the faith to her and knowing that even as he watched his child in the process of perishing before him, the only comfort the only comfort had to be in something real, something true, something with, with substance that could be believed, something that you can sink your teeth into. Man, really, we could say it differently, something that you can build your life around. In the closing hymn we're going to sing in 55 minutes. <laughs> the closing hymn we're going to sing in a little bit is one of those hymns, really. It's one of those, actually, that's written processing not just a hospice house, but the writer's own death. As he contemplates what it means that he would die, I think if I remember correctly, it's as he's actually contemplating going blind, knowing that his death would follow eventually thereafter. But it's a a meditation on the true and the real and the believable because it is a meditation on Christ and his love for me. That no matter what I face, that no matter where my life takes me, that no matter what journey I go on, that if I am a child of God, I cannot outrun the love of God. I I can't get far enough away that I can flee from the love of God. Romans 8 tells us that. I quote it often. Nothing in all of creation, including my own stupid self, can separate me from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. I mean, Isaiah 49 is the song of that Savior. If you remember kind of where we've been in the book, if you've been with us for a while, it's uh, sometimes a challenge to preach these big books like this because the themes are so um, repetitive as they're trying to get kind of slow-minded people to hear it and to believe it. And we've largely seen kind of two themes that have been paired uh, hand in hand. Theme number one is uh, God's people, Israel here, are not listening and as a result, discipline is coming. Destruction is coming to the land of Israel. It's coming to the people of God because they do not hear what the Lord is saying. 
And if they do hear, they do not believe. And if they do believe, they do not obey. There is no life in them. But even as that destruction is coming, the Lord continues to kind of sing over top of the the dreary, minor key melody. He sings this beautiful descant that I love you and I will never leave you. That I love you and I will never forsake you. That I love you and though it looks like the entire world is burning down around you, you will never be able to outrun my love. That's where we pick up in Psalm 49 is that kind of song begins to escalate as it's building to a crescendo we arrive at later in the book. The song of the servant. The prophecy of Jesus Now, it begins to explain who Jesus is hundreds of years prior to his arrival, explaining what this servant is, what our Savior is. Why is he our only hope in life and in death? Well, verses 1 through 3, it starts out, he's worthy of trusting in, he's our only hope in life and in death, he is our only Savior. Well, because that's what he's called to do and called to be. I like how it kind of starts here with a a wake-up call, listen to me, oh coastlands. I got you, your head's popped up, that's what it's supposed to do. Give attention, you peoples from afar, everybody listen, everybody listen, right? This is putting it on the megaphone, the bullhorns that everybody hears. What do you need to hear? What does everybody need to know? What is it that our ears need to be perked up to listen to? That the Lord from the very beginning, but especially here, is called His man, the Savior, the servant. He's called Him from the womb. He's uh, going to have even a special birth. We're going to find out later in the Bible that it would be a virgin birth. That He'd have a special name. Find out later that uh, certainly Emmanuel, Jesus, lots of names, Alpha and Omega. That he would be invested with the power of God. We hear this theme taken up even in Revelation that he is the power of God incarnate. But especially verse 3, I, I love this. That God the Father says to the Son, to this servant, You are my servant, but he names him here specifically and especially Israel, in whom I am glorified. Now, this is a a wonderful theological move. Again, as most of us in the room, probably not Old Testament scholars, we're like, I mean, cool. He called him Israel, neat. I mean, it's one of those Bible names. It's not a surprise that God would call the son a Bible name. I mean, it's the Bible. Makes sense, I guess. Except that there's actually a significant theological move that's was taking place as you remember that uh, in this uh, lineage of God's people, you can trace it all the way back from the Garden of Eden. You have uh, Adam, then you have Seth, and you have the line down. You trace it, these kind of godly line, these godly people, and periodically kind of stationed in that line, there are these key figures that highlight God's mercy and God's love. You have Abraham, where a covenant is established with Abraham. God establishes it, that God would be the Redeemer who would fix all that is wrong in the world. 
But then you have, right, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you have Israel, the child who would eventually become that nation, right? He has the 12, and it goes from just a handful of uh, of family members, and they're taken into slavery, and they multiply into a mighty nation. But it's intriguing that Israel, that name, is really where you begin to see those people, not just the good line from the garden, but they become a nation. They they become a, a people group. They become identifiable as a collective that God provided through one man, Israel, an entire nation. And now for that entire nation, he's providing one man. It's a reversal all the way back of what's taking place in Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob became a great nation. Now that nation is saved by Israel, the Lord Jesus himself. He's called by God. He's appointed for the task. It's been laid out before the foundation of the world. This is what creation exists for, that God would save his people. You think, all right, I like this sermon. Yay, God saves his people. I like it. These are the sermons that make me happy. I get excited. It gives me equipped, make me ready to face the day. The problem is, is that if, if we're really going to be honest, right, if we're going we're to have kind of a sense of self-assessment, a significant portion of the time, we think God has messed up with that plan, right? If we're going to be candid, we're like, Lord, I know that you've provided Jesus to be victorious. I think maybe you just messed up a little bit in what that victory looks like. Maybe we think it it was for other people, but it's not for me. Maybe we think that we get to experience it in some small ways, but we don't get to experience it very much. Maybe we just don't think his victory is very good. Maybe we're just like, eh, a grump about it. And I love that you actually get to see Jesus addressing this very question kind of personified in Isaiah 49. He's answering the question that the disciples would kind of raise up in Isaiah. The book of Acts, like, what kind of savior are you? Like, when are you going to kill Rome? Uh, We're ready for the Romans to be overthrown and like for all of them to die. When are you going to do that? Like, we're kind of like, come on now. It's time, Jesus. You get to see Jesus actually taking up that that very kind of thought on behalf of his people. Verse 4, but I said... I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. You have have Jesus even articulating as the servant of God that yes, for a season, it might look like that. It might look like his victory isn't full and real and true. I love that. He's, He's acknowledging it even from the very beginning. I mean, do you think how comforting this would have been for the disciples right after the crucifixion? I mean, think about that. The rabbi that they follow, that they know is God himself, he's just died on a cross. Uh, he's died a way that is too shameful for even dignified people to die. No one dies that way except for wretches, just horrible humans. Terrible people die that way. And they go and hide in a a room and they've kind of got the doors locked because largely I think they're afraid that the Romans are going to come for them or the Jews are going to come for them next. 
Do you think they are probably going, man, I understand what the Scripture said. Here you have in verse 14, or chapter 49, verse 4, the suffering servant, the servant of God is even articulating, look, it looks like all of my labors have been in vain. It looks like it. It looks like Jesus misstepped. It looks like he made a strategic mistake. It looked like Satan won for a little bit, didn't it? I mean, let's be honest, didn't it? I mean, realistically, absolutely it did. Except for a handful of really very clever and faithful women. Everybody else is like, oh no, it's the end of the world. Jesus lost. What are we going to do? The problem, I think, though, if we're going to be honest, <laughs> is we kind of think in the back of our heads, well, like the disciples probably should have known better. I mean, they studied in the seminary of Jesus, like he was their prof, like they probably should have known better. I mean, they should have trusted him, right? Jesus said he would take care of me, should have trusted him. And the immediate question I have to ask then is, then why don't we? If we're in the back of our head going, well, look, I know that at times it looks like Jesus maybe is doing something that I wouldn't have expected. And I'm going to fault find with the disciples saying they should have been clever enough to figure it out. Why am I not clever enough to figure it out that when Jesus is doing something in my life that I don't understand, it's not that he's messing up. It's just I can't see the rest of the story yet. Instead, what do I do? A pout. Maybe some of you get angry. Maybe you doubt. Maybe you grow weary. Maybe you just feel like kind of giving up. Maybe you're like, well, I'm just going to be mad at God and I won't read my Bible instead. But it's really a, a, a blind spot in our lives that we're not willing to. Look, the, the Bible even warns us that he's not going to look the way that you expect him to look. He's not going to act the way that you expect him to act. At times, he's going to look very different. And it makes sense because he's actually God. I mean, if he, if he acted the way I would expect him to act, man, he'd be a wretched, wretched savior because <laughs> my imagination is very small and it's largely self-centered. Y'all would be miserable if my imagination of savior was in charge because he'd be very busy working for me and not very busy working for you. I love that it kind of addresses that in verses four through six, but then kind of comes back to say, but look, but no, God has called him to the task. And in fact, actually, it's his right. Verse five, this is what the Lord has formed Jesus for. This is what uh, this incarnate second person of the Trinity is for. And in fact, actually, he's so designed for that task, it's bigger and better than what you would have guessed. Look at verse 6. He, he asks here kind of a rhetorical question in some sense. It's not question format, but it's raising that idea. Your imagination is, why are we saving Israel? That's what you're kind of stewing in your imagination, original reader. Right? The Jews are like, well, when is he going to rise up and defend Israel? And verse 6, I love the Lord saying, your imagination's too small. 
It's not just about saving Israel. It's about saving all of his people from all over, from all time and place and space and location and language and cultural background. It's too small. It's too light a thing that you think just for Israel, but for the nations. In fact, there you go into uh, really 7 through 13 is an explanation of what this rain will look like, though not yet full. This rain will look like, though not yet full. Verses 7 through 9a, the first half of 9, it's an explanation of what his care looks like. That again, you can't outrun the care of God. Thus says the Lord, Redeemer of Israel and his holy people, to one deeply despised, whored by the nation, the servant rules, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who's faithful. You're going to have royalty coming, bowing down in your presence, not to you per se, but to the Lord Jesus, to the servant of God. And you're not going to have to worry about the nations, those in might and in power, those that are in charge because God is in charge of even them. And this is, I think, probably not a thing that we in this part of the West think about very often. Maybe the closest we ever think about this is ever if you have like a tax problem and you're suddenly up against the bureaucracy of the federal government and you're like, oh, oh, right? You're paired up against the unyielding glacial force of the government that's just going to crush you at some point. Just eventually squish you and slide over you and just leave you paced beneath it. And those are the moments where you're like, man, I I really long for a God who's bigger than a government. Now, that's a thing that we don't long for very often. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you're a Christian living in the Middle East right now, that is a thing that you think about a lot. A lot. A God that's bigger than any government. In fact, a God that's so great that we can look forward to kings and princes bowing before him. In fact, verse 8 then kind of intensifies that, not just that God is bigger than the government, but that he's tender and close in his care for his people. In a time of favor, I answered you in a day of salvation. I've helped you again, not in the generic, but in the specific. I will keep you personally and give you, this is to the servant, as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritage. I'm going to give you this Savior to the people so you belong to them. So that that they have ownership of you, so that they have closeness with you, so that you have fellowship together, that that you reside together, that you believe together, that you are together. Now the New Testament's gonna take up all sorts of language to try to drill this into our head, and I would say out of many of the kind of normal, ordinary Christian concepts, this is one of the ones that's the most difficult to kind of get our brains wrapped around. To abide in Jesus. That's John's language. 
union with Christ is the theological term that we use today. Being in Christ is how Paul says it, but to be united, living in the Savior. That God's care is so intimate that He gives His Savior so closely to His people that we get to live in Him and live with Him so that our very being exists in Christ. We get these wonderful, lovely metaphors in the Gospels of like all of the various uh, plant illustrations, vines that grow where the dead branches are cut out and and new us branches are grafted into the main vine so that, that Jesus is alive and we find our life growing off of Him, that we exist in Him. How lovely and wonderful is that? Even so far, being so comprehensive in this, that prisoners and those trapped in darkness are brought out to see the light. That this Savior is going to accomplish that, and, and this is where this wonderful kind of tension of, he's already doing this, but it's not yet full, but he's already doing it, but it's not yet full, but he's already doing it, even though it's not yet full. Now, it's now then expanded because you think, okay, well, I want that kind of care. I want a God who loves me so much that he's going to take care of me so well that he's always going to be with me. He's never going to leave me that I won't be able to outrun his love. I want that kind of God. At which point, that's where you get 9b really through 12. The expansion to the nations. I love this. All of these people that are called out, the prisoners, those trapped in darkness, they're called out in the first part of verse 9. And then what happens in 9b through 10 into 11 is that these people are then brought through all of their various roads of creation to the presence of God. You have this kind of wonderful geographic illustration of not all roads leading to Rome, but that for the people of God, all roads leading from wherever nation you're in, Back to Christ. So whether you grew up in the United States or you grew up in Israel or you grew up in Australia or anywhere else, it doesn't matter. We represent these people being brought in and gathered. Right? The vast majority of us in here are not Jewish. By lineage, we have some, but very few. And we represent the fulfillment of this, those that have been brought along, that have, have been cared for, And you think, well, uh, verse 10 doesn't seem to fit me, right? They're not going to have hunger or thirst, the scorching wind and sun's not going to strike them. I I feel those kinds of things all the time, Michael. I feel the the brokenness of the body. I feel the weakness and the weariness of life. I I, I feel needs and wants all of the time. Well, yeah, but I, I don't think that's actually what's being addressed here as much as I think this is more of a portrait of salvation, you know that when you join this church, we uh, have the session meet with you and hear your story of how the Lord has changed your life. And I love hearing sometimes the most ridiculously complex things that God has used to orchestrate the salvation of his saints. We're like, that was what he used? Really? That's the most shocking thing? I can't believe that. Really? You got converted from that sermon? You got converted from that song? It's a terrible song. That one doesn't sing in hospice. 
It doesn't sing in your car. It's terrible. That was what the Lord used. He he cares for his people so you can't get away from his love. You are anchored in Christ, and if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you cannot get away from that. He's going to keep you. He's going to watch over you. He's going to bring you home. All that builds to verse 13, uh, which is this kind of portrait of the entire earth singing. And when we built this building, that was one of the things that we tried to do, is to have a, a building that in so much as we could, had it sound like the entire earth was singing. And when you sing the doxology the way you did today, I can believe it. Right? The entire earth resounding in song for this Savior, Jesus. I love it. Now, that's the happy part, isn't it? Right? You can't outrun the Lord's love. Yay! I like that sermon. Stop here, please. The problem, though, is that there are some that are listening and say, Michael, that's good in concept, and I believe that for other people, but I don't believe that for me. There are some in the room, or listening online, that already are thinking, well, I, okay, I understand that the Bible says that. I, that just doesn't match my experience. The idea of God taking care of me every day, the, the idea of God orchestrating my life, that it's, it's good. I, uh, I have to wonder, either he's incompetent or he's not actually doing what he said. I, I, I really struggled to believe that. In fact, actually, I love that that's exactly where the Isaiah goes. Verse 14, you have, but Zion saying, well, okay, if that's what God's busy doing, obviously he forgot about me. He might have remembered you goons, but he didn't remember me because my life doesn't fit that. My life is filled with difficulty. My life is filled with tears. My life is filled with sadness and sorrow. My life is difficult right now. If God's taking care of everybody like that, he must be doing that for you because he's certainly not doing that for me. How come my experience doesn't match? If you're that person, don't lie to yourself. Just admit that you are, please. So many of these applications miss because you're busy lying to yourself. You're busy saying, well, that's, I mean, he's not talking about me. I'm talking about you. Because when you say that it's not you, you miss the comfort that comes after. What does the Lord say? I love this. Can a new mom forget her kid? Most of us are going to say no. Some of our young moms that are still so terribly sleep deprived will say sometimes. And I love that both answers are assumed, actually. Our God is so wise. Can a woman forget her nursing child? She'd have no compassion on the child of her womb. And the the implied answer is, well, no, she can't forget. But then you have, even some of them do forget. But God never forgets. The same way that a mom loves her child and her entire world becomes devoted to that child in some form or fashion. They don't forget, but occasionally they do. 
but our God never does. Those pictures of tenderness and love that we have in our parents, those pictures of tenderness and love that we have in our grandparents, those pictures of tenderness and love that we have in those In the South, we called them aunts and uncles or grandma and grandpa. They're not related to in any way, but we're just older saints that loved you so deeply. All of those people are just kind of glimpses at our God. He doesn't forget. He doesn't forget. He hasn't forgotten you. In fact, he now goes into an illustration that I think many of us would be very uncomfortable for our children He then says it's like he has a tattoo of you on his hand. You can't miss that. You see it every time you do something. It's like it's been carved into his hand. He's like he has a a scar or a brand or a tattoo. He sees you constantly. Obviously, the Lord doesn't have hands. He's using a human illustration. Did you ever have that? This is funny. Like we're, We're like you get a cut in between your fingers Right, or you get some really like awful paper cut or cardboard cut on your hand, and you're like, you don't realize how bad it is until you get one of those things, and they're like, my goodness, I cannot get this thing to heal because I keep bumping it on stuff and hitting it on. I use it all. I cannot. I can't forget about it because it's always there. That's what he's doing. He can't forget about you. You're always in the front of his mind. He can't forget you. It's like he's got you engraved on his hand. Lift up your eyes. Be encouraged. In fact, even the Lord's going to use even these difficulties. And they will become eventually like the jewelry that a bride wears. This is, I think, an intriguing concept to think about. And this is, I I suspect, even more so for today as we have such amazing affluence and opulence in the Hollywood kind of world where you get to see now these very handsome men and very lovely ladies that will go out wearing bajillions of dollars of diamonds. And to think about that every one of those gemstones represents immeasurable amounts of heat and pressure. We don't ever think about them that way, do we? We think about them as being sparkly and pretty, as eye-catching or expensive. But we don't think about them as being proof of heat and friction and compression and pressure. How do you make diamonds? You take carbon and you subject it to the worst forces that creation has and compress it until it crystallizes into something brilliant and beautiful. And that's what the bride is adorned in. We forget that. That he uses our sufferings to be the beautiful jewels that we wear in those last days. Now, I'm going to be candid. Some of you are called to wear more jewelry than others. Some of you get some really big diamonds. Now, the funny thing is, as a lady in here, most likely, if your husband came and presented you with a huge diamond, you'd be very excited about that. The interesting thing is because our vision is a little bit skewed, when our God presents us with very big diamonds, we get cantankerous about it. Maybe our values don't match his. He can't forget the ones that he loves, 15 through 21. Duh. There's never enough time. 
can't forget his children, and can't put them away. Well, what does this all mean? Well, he's accomplishing a specific purpose. Verses 22 through 26 kind of work this out. I love how it ends. That all flesh will know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is the kind of verse that doesn't really stick in our ears. We've heard that kind of thing so many times. Meh. And I, I suspect the reason why that kind of verse just doesn't stick in our ears and kind of meh and goes in and out on the other side is because we miss the possessive verb. We hear that all flesh will know that I'm the Lord, Savior, and Redeemer, and Mighty One of Jacob, and we, we skip over your. You probably are forgetting at some point, at least if you're in the middle of difficulty, that the Lord has actually built your life to be a brag book for his glory. Do you know what a brag book is? This is a thing they give young parents, right, when you have the babies and you can, oh, look here, all of my little babies, and you can show them grandparents have those. They've largely been replaced by phones, and now it's Facebook. Here, look at my Facebook pictures. Please don't make me. It's terrible. I don't want <laughs> But we forget that in many ways, our lives are designed to be a brag book for the glory of God, where the Lord pulls it out and says, look, look at what I'm doing. Look, look at their life. Look at what I'm doing. He hasn't forgotten you. He's putting diamonds all around you so that he can brag and say, that's what I did. Look, they're beautiful. And it's all done within the context of Isaiah 49, specifically in the ministry of Jesus. Now, what, what do we do with this? Very quickly. Some of us in the room perhaps need to be a little bit more um, long-suffering or patient with those that are in the process of accumulating diamonds. Sometimes those of us that are accumulating diamonds might not handle it with the grace and elegance that we would like to do so. Maybe the diamonds are a bit too heavy for a season. And so our task is if we're not in the furnace at the time, our task is to come alongside and to put an arm around and to bear with and carry along so that when you're accumulating your diamonds, those sufferings, you don't have to do it alone. Now, if you're those people that are in the process of, of that suffering, I would say there's really two applications here that I would like to draw out. One is that all of this is designed for you to see that Jesus is at work and he's beyond competent. You just don't see it yet. Right? He's beyond competent. You just don't see it yet. I love these little internet videos. If you ever see these, it marvels, like, boggles my mind how people do this. I don't know if you've watched these, where they'll have this you know, kind of wonderful little canvas out and they'll start painting a thing. And you'll be like, what on earth are they painting? And they paint it and they finish it and you're like, that is the worst thing ever. And then they flip it upside down and it's like the most ornate painting. They paint it upside and you're like, how did you do that? So much of our lives are in that moment where it's upside down and we just don't see it yet. So if you're in that point where it hurts and you're confused, dear friends, 
Jesus is not making a mistake. Trust him. He's too good. He doesn't make mistakes. But secondly, and I would say perhaps less important, but not unimportant, is that if you find yourself in that place and the weight is getting too heavy, would you please reach out? Here's the thing is, we have lots of people in this room, and though most of you don't, I think most of you know everybody in here, but some of you don't know that many of you in here, everybody in here wants to help you live a better life. Everybody in here wants you to have a more enjoyable life, a more delightful life, a more obedient life, and a more godly life. And I will tell you, so often when people are suffering, it's, we just don't know. Spurgeon has a great line on this. He said that little hurts are very loud, but the biggest hurts are often silent. Right? If I stub my toe, everybody in here is going to know about it. Because I'm going to go over to the fellowship meal and I'm going to tell you about my stubbed toe. I'm going to tell you I had to wear different shoes because the, the swelling was so big that it wouldn't fit in my normal. I didn't really stub my toe, but you, know, you get the point. But if I had that deep-seated hurt that was like ending my heart, I wouldn't tell any of you. I mean, I would. But you see the point, don't you? Those kind of hurts are so quiet. Please tell us so that your brothers and sisters can put arms around you and help carry you to the throne of Jesus and say, let's look at the Savior together. He's not making a mistake. He is taking care of you, but it must hurt terribly, and we're going to do our best to be beside you the whole way. Because, friends, here's the reality. You cannot outrun the love of God. And the biggest way to help you understand that are the people sitting next to you. You can't outrun us either if you'll just tell us that we can be those hands and feet of the Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his wisdom and his love. Thank you that he is far faster than our feet can carry us. Would you bless us in his name? Amen.